Welcome back to Ramen FM, the podcast behind the Ramen Club community. On this pod, we discuss stories, tactics, and actionable insights that will help you take your bootstrap startup to ramen profitable and beyond. Today, we have another very special guest, my good friend Julian Canlis, founder of Embark.io. Embark is an on-demand content marketing productized service. Started three years ago, it's now making over 700,000 ARR, having worked with clients like Veed, Riverside FM, Buy Me A Coffee, amongst others. We discussed the future of SEO, how to grow productized services, Julian's advice to bootstrap founders, and so much more. So with no further ado, let's get into this one. Hey Julian, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, deeply honored and humbled to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Charlie. So I think maybe it'd be good for us to start at the beginning. And if you could just tell us a little bit more about the origin story of Embark and why you decided to start it, basically. Well, the short story is, you know, the age-old story of being deeply unhappy at work and wanting to provide value to the world in my own way. The long story is I've been blogging since 2009. Over the years, I've had a travel blog, a blog about writing, a blog about philosophy. I also helped grow one of the first online publications for bootstrappers and online founders. And that's how I've met you and Dominic Mon, who runs Cruise, and other people who would end up being my lifelong friends, basically. Be- I started being part of like the bootstrapping community in 2018. I didn't have a business until two years later. So for, for two full years, I was just looking for a business. And eventually, I stumbled upon the productized service business model I, you know, on, on Indie Hackers. I, I read one of the posts by Robert van der Hayden, who runs the productized community on Facebook. He was one of the pioneers of productized services. He used to run many designs, basically. And I just fell in love with the idea. Basically, I love the fact that, you know, you could offer a clearly defined set of services at fixed prices and it was very transparent as opposed to that, like the standard agency model where there was a lot, where there's a lot of obscure obfuscation around like the offerings basically that, so that's how I started Embark. Great. And I remember over the last few years, cause I used, I think we both worked in more traditional agencies kind of thing and we've seen how chaotic that can be where like every project needs to be like priced differently basically and scopes differently and in comparison productized services must be like a bit of a breath of fresh air because it's like somewhere between like a full SaaS and like an agency it's like a nice one in the begin in the middle where you can get started with the skills you have kind of thing that's kind of my impression of productized services of course so for me i love the idea of behind productized services because, you know, as I've said before, it is basically an offer with a clearly defined set of recurring services at fixed prices. And, you know, once you've hit product market fit, once you validated, you know, the demand for your productized service, it's much easier to scale than an agency service. Obviously, like over time, you need to be able to hire in order to like grow your services because it's it's very labor driven. But it was much more attractive than a standard agency model where you need to provide, I don't know, like customized services for for every single client, base, for every single prospect that comes in your way, basically. 
and I don't like sales. So productized services allow me to like scale my business without having to get into call into calls all the time, basically, because all the prices, all the services are clear, clearly listed in the website, basically. I recall when you were starting out, you were also studying at university and I believe had a job and that sort of thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. How was the transition from going to starting Embark to when you were full time on it? Like, did you wait until you had a certain amount of revenue, like ramen profitability before you went full time? Or did you kind of take a bit of a leap of faith of savings? Or how did that process work? I didn't have a job. I was studying a master's in business. The transition was fairly easy. So in the first year when I was doing my master's, I didn't, I felt overstretched definitely because I was pursuing this master's full time and I was also growing this agency. After the first year, I dropped out of my master's and that's really when Embark grew by a thousand percent basically. So yeah, the focus did help me you know, grow this agency. The transition periods, you know, they've been tough, but fun. So I went from being a one-person agency to hiring people. And and now we're trying to scale things to the next level by clearly defining the strategy and our, our acquisition channels, basically. So for someone that doesn't like sales, 1,000% growth is pretty impressive, as is where you've got to now, which is post 700k ARR is the last last I heard anyway. I know you're not sharing this updates publicly so much now, but um, what are the biggest kind of factors or contributors to such amazing growth over the years? Definitely customer referrals. You know, our, our customers have helped bring in new prospects that are very high quality. I get some clients on Twitter and LinkedIn, but not as much as people think, if that makes sense. We also get some clients via SEO. And I think that like for, for service-based businesses, SEO is, is a really underrated channel, basically. Because if you think about it, a lot of people search for services on Google, but not a lot of services are, are taking advantage of that, basically. So yeah, a good bulk of our clients, we get them through SEO. And obviously, we convert them through the social proof in our website, basically. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And in terms of like the kinds of clients that you take on or consider taking on, is there like a certain like type of business that you think is just most suitable to use SEO? I love this question. If you run an online business, you most likely can benefit from SEO. So an obvious industry would be SaaS. You, as a SaaS business, you essentially offer a virtual product that solves a specific need. You know, if the problem that your SaaS is solving is widely searched on Google and belongs to a category like customer support, video editing, podcasting, the higher chances are of you, you know, of growing via SEO basically. As I've said before, services, service-based businesses can also tremendously benefit from SEO, but they need to be creative on how to use this channel. Marketplaces, obviously, you know, Fiverr and Upwork, their main growth channel is SEO. Job boards, obviously, indeed, depends on SEO in, in order to, to, like, to grow their client base and also to, like, to get like, job seekers searching for jobs online and within the actual platform, basically. 
On the flip side, SEO is less effective for, for businesses that are not very online. So an obvious example of that would be farming. Not a lot of farmers would, you know, would be searching on Google for 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 queries that can help bring in clients, basically. Take note, any farmers listening in. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> and um, something that I have I've wondered sometimes is like, because people tend to look at obviously, you know, they default to stuff that, you know, has like a few thousand queries a month in a country and also has quite a low keyword difficulty. But are there cases where like it's more of an enterprise company in like a niche where there isn't actually very high search volume, but like the the potential like lifetime value or revenue per user is so high because it's such a high price kind of ticket item that actually sometimes SEO tools can be a bit misleading. And even though it's kind of low volume, it's actually like quite high value kind of thing. Of course. And I think that when it comes to understanding the value of SEO, you you have to look at different factors that are involved in turning a searcher into a customer, basically. So when it comes to like formulating an SEO strategy, what I tend to do is I obviously I look at the keywords and the search volume in that industry, and I also look at the conversion potential. So that's a very important factor that not a lot of people realize. In niches where people are actively looking for a product and or, or an offering to buy, for example, like you know when I search for best video editing software, that is that is a very good query to get money from, mainly because the searchers are actively looking for a video editing software to use, basically. On the flip side, like how to edit a video, um, it's informational in nature and it doesn't it doesn't provide a ton of conversion, but at the same time, the traffic is still relevant and it can be beneficial, basically. So within your SEO strategy, you have to think about the conversion potential of a specific keyword. If the keyword is commercial in nature, so if the search is actively looking for like to buy a product or a service, that's perfect. The main goal there is to target this keyword with a page with the main intention to turn the searcher into customer, basically. But when it comes to like targeting informational queries, obviously by nature, informational queries or how-tos, they they gener- they they have much more search volume in general, but they don't convert as much. So in that case, you really have to think about your your nurturing funnel. Like, how do you turn those uh, searches, those clicks into subscribers, so newsletter subscribers, whatever kind of subscriber, trial users or whatever, and how do you put them in a funnel that eventually leads to patches? I find, so in, so, in an industry that's just so data-driven and things are so quantifiable, I find it interesting how like, to some extent, anyway, judging the intent of a keyword when you're like doing research in the first place is, is still a little bit intuitive or subjective kind of thing. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, can you see a world where that kind of thing can be automated with like natural language processing or something like that one day? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's really just common sense. You know, when you assess a query, a lot of times you can you can identify whether a query is inf- informational by nature or commercial by nature. So informational, the main intent there is to read a guide. Commercial, the main intent there is to purchase something, basically. You don't even need natural language processing to understand this. To identify the intent of a keyword, if you don't want to like rely on your intuition, just literally type 
on Google, type that keyword on Google and check out the top results. If the if most of the top results are either product listicles or commercial landing pages with the main with the main objective to convert those customers, obviously, that's a commercial intent. If most of the results are how-to guides, that's an informational intent. You don't even need like AI or anything to figure that out, basically. You just literally have to go through the top results basically and see what's ranking best. Oh, I, I completely agree. You know, at a sort of individual level or like human scale, the amount of time you have level, you definitely don't need AI for any of this stuff. Um, but I'm talking about like being able to do this at scale. So kind of automating, you know, people already automating, creating articles and that kind of thing. I'm not saying these are like great articles or anything like that, but I'm just thinking that the stage before that of like identifying keywords to create articles for, that still takes a bit of human interference to kind of, decide of the stuff which is like sufficiently high volume which stuff has a good intent that kind of thing and it kind of leads me on to a question i just want to pick one out from the chat from elston so is chat gpt the end of seo i think it's so i i do like the clickbait way that this is written but maybe let's reframe it slightly it's just like what do you see julian as the impacts of ai on the seo industry in in the long term like what is hype and what do you think is like genuinely kind of impactful i love chat i don't use it to create content but i do acknowledge like the innovations that it's brought forth to like not just seo but other industries as well i don't think that its future specifically lies in content creation or or even like an seo strategy that brings in clients basically and the main reason for that is the types of pages that bring, you know, that bring in money directly. So those are you know, landing pages and and commercial queries. Basically, these are queries where people expect a level of human intervention. And what I mean by that is, you know, when 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 you're looking for a, a review on, I don't know, like uh, Riverside or V.io. If you realize that it's been written by an AI, you're less likely to trust that page, right? There, you, you, there, there is an expectation that the, the the article has a certain level of contextual knowledge and interpretation in regards to the subject matter that they've written about, basically. So for the high, you know, the high conversion like queries that you can target via SEO. That's not going to be affected by AI. I do think that like AI will definitely change the way that we do SEO, especially with the way that knowledge gets indexed by Google and search engines, where previously, you know, the top results over the last few decades have been a list-based format. I think in the future, it will be appended by, you know, having many different types of content within this format. So where before it was only like website pages, now there could be like videos or YouTube pages. There could even be a chat box within within the search results page, which now exists. Another thing that people need to realize or SEOs need to realize is that the way that people are searching for things is rapidly changing where before they mostly use Google search, now people use BARD, Google BARD, and ChatGPT to refine this search. So like a lot of times I don't know what I'm searching for 
online and I need to like find prompts or maybe even interact with a machine to figure out what I'm really looking for, basically. I mean, even even in real life, like when I don't know what I want, I need someone to talk to basically in order to refine what I'm looking for. So that's so in the future, SEOs will have to take that into account. Like, how do you take advantage of these search patterns in order to appear maybe in ChatGPT, maybe in Google Bards? It's actually happened to like to one of my clients where we've managed to like optimize for Google Bard and like I think a good chunk of their of their clients they they you know the, the product gets recommended via Bard, which is impressive, but obviously like that's just the changing nature of SEO basically. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of interesting, well, potential changes, but you know, the foundations seem fairly similar kind of thing. Like I haven't seen anyone really actually displace Google that much so far. But do you think any other search engines are a threat to them in the near term, like Bing or anything like that? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that Google will have less of a monopoly on the industry. And I think that like, it will be more equity distributed. But but I think that like, Google will still have the market share in the future. Obviously, I could be wrong. But there needs to be like, a fundamental change in the way that people search beyond, you know, maybe a chat-based interface, I guess. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And I want to switch gears a little bit and just ask a bit more back into the growth that you've experienced and how that actually manifests itself for you personally. So the kind of, I see it as like the three main stages as when you're like starting out, probably still writing content yourself, getting clients and that kind of thing then perhaps a small team. And then so now where you're thinking about building a management team and that sort of thing, like, is that how you would describe the phases? And how do you kind of deal with going through those transitions? Yeah, I think I think that I would embark, I went from obviously being a one person agency to like building a team and now expanding the agency by providing more services. I think that like when you run a productized service or an agency in general, at a certain point you'll you'll reach a level where you where you realize that like things start to stagnate in terms of growth basically. So like maybe like the retention and churn they're flat they're making your growth flatline basically. So that comes like after like, you know, hiring the operations, hiring managers and stuff. And I think in order for a productized service to grow to the next level, they'll either need to like have a more robust growth strategy. So that means formalizing the hierarchy, hiring people for growth as well as for operations. In the case of Embark, you know, obviously that goes beyond like hiring SEOs and writers and hiring marketing and sales, basically. So like after like now that I figure out the operations, I, I need to find people for marketing and sales, basically. And the level after that could be to either raise the prices, but obviously you can't infinitely raise your prices or providing new offers, basically. So that's, I think that's where the transition, the next transition lies, if that makes sense. I need to like, I need to see how I can offer, how I can provide better offers and hire like growth people for, for the agency. Was it the right question? Was it the right answer? Yeah, for sure. And going through all of this and all the other kind of challenges that you faced, like how do you kind of, as a founder, like ensure your own longevity? 
do you have any kind of rituals or habits that kind of keep you sane or anything like that or are you, do you feel like you're still sort of winging it <laughs> both i think that as a founder you need you, you need to have a high level of grit and you need to be able to bounce back from from setbacks and and a lot of times you'll you'll be knocked out and and you have to like get up uh, as fast as you can basically and like you know assess your growth and and move to the next stage if you can basically as for me in my first year i was definitely stretched out i was working 16 hour days doing my masters and running in bark and that's when i didn't really grow much and in my second year i learned how to take breaks i learned that having a break is better than burning out so i realized that like oh crap like i'm really just like flagellating myself into thinking that more hours result into more work. You have to realize that as a founder, part of growing a business is creative, right? And if you don't have breaks, if you allow yourself to constantly burn out, that you begin hating what you're doing as a founder, or you don't have room to think creatively and strategically, that will lead to your demise, basically. So have breaks, have eight-hour days if you can. Like, you know, have a set time where you stop working, Maybe during the week, don't go out as much and focus on working, basically. But on the weekend, go wild. Having like these clear boundaries will definitely allow you to like create a routine or a system that will allow you to be in the business in the longer term. And obviously, in my industry, I the SEO industry is ruthless and tough. It's extremely saturated, and there. You know, changes happen left and right. So, so in that regard, you always need to be in your toes, basically, because if you coast by and if you don't really innovate, if you if you don't change your services, if you provide offers that that become obsolete over time, that's when you die, basically. A hundred percent. And can you recall any times that you have been burnt out in the last few years? Oof. Let me preface this by saying that I'm an idiot. <laughs> I can be too trusting and i've definitely hired the wrong people over time i've lost around two hundred fifty thousand dollars in in potential insurance revenue i think even 300k now and and that's because like it, it is essentially my first time growing a business building an agency building a team hiring people managing revenue growing revenue and in the process of that, obviously, I, you know, I, I made mistakes in regards to hiring the wrong people. For example, like sales, like I, I tried to hire an account manager around last year, and he ended up ghosting me for two weeks and not responding to any of responding to any customer requests. Basically, uh, in July and August, when I've, you know, when I felt like I could have a break, so so that was very intense. There was also a writer that that we realized was plagiarizing articles. And that was very stressful. And it's lucky that she was just responsible for two clients. So I had to tell the clients like, we'll replace these articles. But I just wanted to let you know that some of them have been plagiarized. So that was that was extremely stressful. And I, and I couldn't sleep for a few days because of that, basically. But again, this is again, related to like, you know, bouncing back basically from setbacks and you just have to roll with the punches, basically. 250K is a lot of money. So it's very painful, especially for someone as frugal as I am. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah, that's that's a difficult one, hundred um, percent. Did that change how you approach hiring afterwards? Like, what kind of things can you do to try and avoid that sort of thing? Yes, definitely. So over time, we've learned to implement what I'd like to call trust processes. So these are effectively milestones that foster trust along the run, if that makes sense. Like I, I prefer to promote and hire internally as well through, for example, third-party connections or to like to promote someone internally and to make sure that they understand the strategic tasks uh, should I want to promote them. Our SOPs are much better than before as well. So standard operating procedure documents. We detail not only the step-by-step instructions to what they need to do, but also like the framework, basically, how they need to think about doing something. And that's that, that's been a game changer for us because it really helped the team think in a more strate- strategic way, if that makes sense. So before I was hiring freelancers, now we're slowly transitioning to uh, like a full-time team. And that's mainly due to like having been able to build this trust over time. And you want to set up these accountability processes in order to make sure that you're not getting burned out in the process by having, you know, a team that you can't trust. Trust is so important. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And um, I think that's great advice for people who are at the stage of building a team or recruiting and that kind of thing. What's your kind of common advice that you give to people who are just starting building their online business or SaaS who don't have, they want to do SEO, but they don't have any domain rating or anything like that? Where should they start in that situation? So they should start by interacting online where they're, target customers are so that for for most b2b businesses that's mostly on linkedin and twitter if you're b2c obviously you could you could use instagram and tiktok and over time you can like build a network of operators or other founders in your niche that you're not competing against it's really just a case of audience building SEO now or in the next few years is going to be more holistic. And I think that social media is going to be much more important, mainly because having a social media channel implies that you're a real person as opposed to an AI. So Google will be, I think, in the future or already is using you know social media presence as, as a significant SEO factor, ranking factor, basically. So can you, you can make friends along the way, tell them to provide you links, basically. Tell them, ask them if you can like publish guest articles on their website. It's really as organic as that. And obviously at the same time, understand what your competitors are doing in terms of marketing and SEO, the different pages that they've created on their website that is garnering traffic. You don't even need to like invest in something as expensive as Ahrefs or, or SEMrush. You just have to be observant. They just have to like figure out what's working with their strategy. If if they've been producing a type of content consistently, that's an indication that, you know, that's a successful SEO initiative they've been undertaking basically. And with these kinds of tools, like What's the most accurate way of looking at keyword volume? Because I did hear that some of the some of the popular keyword research tools sometimes the 
the exact volume figures are maybe can be a little bit off. I don't know. What's the latest on that? Because I'm interested myself. Yes. So keyword estimations by third-party SEO tools lag behind by around six months in general. And you can actually see that in real time. If you haven't noticed, on various SEO tools like SEMrush and Ahrefs, if you search for if you search for a query like ChatGPT, re- you'll realize that the graph of these queries are not exactly um are not exactly accurate in that like they underestimate the actual volume search by you know by people interested in the topic at the time basically so when it comes to like when it comes to these queries it's important that you have a pulse on the market it's important that you like that you subscribe to your industry newsletters that you follow like industry leaders in social media and that you have a pulse on what's happening the discussions that are happening that will help you figure out uh, what people are searching for because eventually you know trending topics a lot of trending topics eventually turn evergreen basically there's also a lot of queries that are not correctly estimated in hrefs and there's actually a trick to figure out if a query is being under calculated i guess and you know you can just like write like a 300 word article publish in your blog and wait for uh, Google Search Console to start indexing that page, basically. And that has a more accurate estimation of the real traffic because it's Google data, basically. Yeah, I get you. I get you. And going back to something that you said at the beginning, so so we originally met on Telegram, right, Julian, about five years ago or so. Uh, it was related to Maker Mag, one of the first kind of maker indie maker magazines back in yes. 2018. And I've since known you through different communities, like when after I started Indie Beers and then later Rum Club. So like what place do you think being parts of these kind of founder communities has for you and for founders generally? And where, where do you see this kind of thing going? The impact of founder communities on me has been profound and life-changing. As I've said before, when I first stumbled upon, I guess, the indie hacking community, the founders community in 2018, I didn't really have anything. And I've always thought of entrepreneurship as something that was out of reach for me. Over time, being part of these communities allowed me to build confidence and trust in myself that I can actually do this. And it also like helped me figure things out along the way. As a first-time founder, I do not know what I'm doing, basically. And being part of communities... And, you know, reading these various publications, so Maker Mac at the time, where I was a founding editor. So that's how I stumbled upon this amazing community. Failure, Startup Story, Indie Bytes, Indie Hackers, all these publications and communities. It really allowed me to learn through other people's mistakes. And as a first-time founder... It is so important that you go through these different stories of the stories of people building in public and try to piece out the puzzle. Understand the context behind what they're saying. Even when they're being super generic, there's a, there, there's a level of truth that will allow you to like scale your business to the next level. Myself at Embok, one of the things, one of the growth issues that I'm currently facing is, is that there's not a lot of like guides or how-tos or like or like breakdowns on how to grow an agency from 50k MRR to 100k MRR. There's neither, there's not really a lot of stories of regarding scale ups essentially, and I'm having to like experiment along the way. But it's much harder now because, I, yeah, there yeah there are no stories basically. So yeah, in that regard, communities 
have helped me like grow this business. And with like, if I weren't part of this community, Embark wouldn't exist definitely. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, it's obviously been a big thing for me because I run communities. But yeah, I mean, it's been amazing to have you in these communities as well for a lot of people who just don't know much about SEO growth and that kind of thing. So in terms of like the next stage for Embark, where do you see it five years from now? I, w- I want to reach a level where the agency is growing without without me having to manage everything, basically. So that obviously includes hiring more growth people. So if you know if you have any contacts, DM me on Twitter. We also want to expand our offers. So beyond providing backlinks and SEO articles, we you know we want to want to delve into YouTube video SEO creation basically seo strategies and and other sorts of services related to seo i do want to diversify my portfolio of businesses so like i may want to dabble into affiliate like i want to i might want to launch like some affiliate websites i'm also interested in like maybe like launching like a SaaS product with a technical co-founder because i'm not technical basically uh, so I'm keeping myself open, but like right now, I'm making sure that like the processes at Embark is as robust as they can be, basically before branching out. Basically, yeah, it's kind of like I've noticed that myself with Ramen Club. As you go along the way, you there's so many that oh that side projects would be good. That seems related, you know, like doing a SaaS or maybe starting an agency and that kind of thing. And sometimes I just got to remind myself actually just keep doing the main thing <laughs> until. A certain stage and then think about thinking about branching out but do you have any kind of early things you can share about what that what new things could be once you feel you're at that stage or is it a little bit early to tell it's a little bit too early i'll sh- maybe i'll share the i'll share the metrics most likely <laughs> <laughs> and so you said about the kind of trust based processes for when you're hiring already but are there any kind of typical kind of you know, places that you go to find good writers and other kind of roles that you can share? We mostly hire on Indeed. The, in the early stages, I used to trawl through Upwork and Fiverr, but I quickly realized that it wasn't really a scalable strategy, mainly because obviously it's it's really hard to send messages to many different people on those websites, obviously. So it wasn't a very scalable process. And we wanted a process that we could control. So that involved like inviting the writer to our Slack channel and making sure that there's a window of time where they're online and when we can provide our feedback on their writing. We actually took advantage of an early, not an early bug, like a, a 2022 bug or feature on Indeed where if you post a remote job listing across different cities, you you can like you can publish those job posts at no additional cost basically it doesn't work anymore but that really helped us like scale <laughs> the wave that we hired writers uh, now we prefer to hire through word of mouth so through personal recommendations basically so if a writer has knows a writer that they can recommend to us we prefer hiring through that chat through that way basically got you got you this is a question I ask everyone towards the end, Julian. But if you had like one piece of final advice to send out to budding bootstrap founders, what is the kind of main piece of advice you give those people? Have fun. You'll fail a lot. 
a lot of your initiatives will end up being a failure <laughs> and the path to profitability is really hard. I think I got lucky, honestly. So I've been like, I've been creating content online since 2009 and that really allowed me, that really set the foundation for how to grow a business online, basically. So that was an advantage that not a lot of people have. But I think that like that the main thing that I've learned along the way is to have fun in the process because it's it's fucking hard, right? If the spark isn't there, people will people will see that your customers will see that, and you'll most likely will end up like burning out and building a product that no one wants, basically. So just have fun, man. Couldn't agree more. You've got to enjoy the process as it's a big part of your life. Look, Julian, yeah. thanks so much for coming on. It's been great to chat to you as ever. I chat to you pretty much every day anyway, so it's good to do it one more time. <laughs> and yeah, I hope everyone enjoys this episode when it goes out. 